Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. And there's something to be said of when you're sitting in ICU for a week. And there's a box right there that you're like, okay, I hope they don't need that. <laughs> but if they do, look, it's right there. It's not going to get lost. Let's just keep that front and center. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. That clip was from Holly Raymond in Austin, Texas. As you'll be able to tell from Holly's interview, she has a vibrant, energy-filled, positive kind of personality. However, she's had some struggles in her life while building her career over the years, and she's very open and transparent about that part of her story, particularly towards the end of the interview. I think you're going to get a lot out of this from not just the career standpoint, but from the personal standpoint as well. I really appreciated how open she was about her story. In addition, if you have an interest in the nonprofit world, that's the path that Holly took after a little time in public accounting. So she's got a great story for you there as well. Lots of value in this one. Seriously, lots of value. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit us at whereaccountantsgo.com to subscribe to the podcast or possibly check out our job board for the Texas area or possibly check out information on all the certifications in the accounting world, as well as our affiliate links there also. That site, once again, is whereaccountantsgo.com. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Holly Raymond in Austin, Texas. Well, hello, Holly. Thank you so much for being willing to share your career story with the audience today. Hi, Mark. It's so great to be here. Thank you. Well, for the audience, we have Holly Raymond from Austin, Texas on the phone. Holly was recommended by a former guest on the show, actually. And when I spoke to Holly initially, it was apparent that she definitely has some interesting aspects to her career that I think really is going to benefit all of us. So I'm looking forward to getting into the details. Her career spans public accounting and then a transition into really mission-led organizations, basically nonprofits, and even a few personal struggles that Holly said she's going to share as well. So this should be really, really good for all of us. Holly, let's start at the beginning so we get the full story. I definitely don't want to miss any of the important parts. What initially led you to accounting as a possible career in the first place? Well, I was very lucky because I took an accounting class my senior year of high school with Renee Harrington at Jack C. Hayes in Buda, Texas. So I met Miss Harrington. She was my, and I'm going to date myself, I'm 39, so I'm going to continue to claim that for the next few months <laughs> before, I, before I turn the big 4-0. She was my microcomputer 
teacher my freshman year in high school, and we just clicked. Like, we just always got along. Um, so my junior year, I was a class officer and planned the prom with her and the other class officers. She was our sponsor that year. So while we were building our sun, moon, and stars set to be decorations for the dance, she recruited some of us for her accounting class the next year. She The numbers that she had weren't high enough, and she was afraid they were going to cancel it. And so she was just all out recruiting us <laughs> during our decorating. And it was just, it was absolutely fantastic. I remember sitting in that class and thinking that I was fluent in a language that I didn't know that I spoke. It made sense. I loved that there was a balance to it and problem solving. And mainly it was that Miss Harrington was there teaching us as a, a true kind of mentor and guiding person that just really set me on that future path. Okay, we've done 80-something episodes, and you're the first person to say they were recruited at the prom into accounting. So yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and, of course, while we were decorating, we also put completely inappropriate things in the balloons, like staples and staplers and rolls of tape and all of the things that we could find in her classroom, we put in balloons to decorate. So, <laughs> but, yes, wow. recruited, recruited during prom. <laughs> That is amazing. Wow. So where did you go to college? I went to the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I had always wanted to be a Longhorn, and it was right up the street from our house. It was about 15 minutes from my hometown. Okay. Straight through college, or did you Yeah, yeah. that you were going to be an accounting major, I guess? I did. After I took that accounting class, I went straight in at UT and applied to the business school because I had a guaranteed admittance and it was the only school I applied to because I had wanted to be a Longhorn my whole life. And it was a big accomplishment, not just for me, but for my family because I was a first generation college graduate. UT has the number one accounting program in the nation. So you went for five years and got your bachelor's and master's at the same time. So it was just absolutely fantastic because I got the best education and accounting that I could. And I still got to be a Longhorn and it was really cheap for my parents. So they appreciated that as well. <laughs> yeah, that, that's always good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> What was the transition to the workforce like for you? Did you do some internships or, or just, you know, get your first job straight out? How did that whole process work for you? I did. And that was one of the reasons why I knew accounting was right for me and especially the PPA program because they had a 100% placement rate. And so as a 19-year-old kid at UT, the thought of knowing that I was going to have a guaranteed job and not have to live with my parents forever was a big draw. I wanted to be out and be independent and to be able you know, to be successful. And to me at the time, that's what success looked like. So we were heavily recruited by the, it was the big five at the time. And I chose to go with Ernst & Young in Austin. They had, I think it was 10 spots that year for anybody. And that was for all the colleges in Texas and well, everywhere. And I was able to get one of those 10 spots. So I, but I, Oh, I went audit for sure. I took a tax class and it's funny with accountants, you're either tax or audit and you know right off the bat which way you're going to be. And I remember people saying, well, you do have a big personality, so audit's probably where you want to go. <laughs> I, I don't know if they, I guess they didn't have a lot of faith that the tax side could handle me. So <laughs> they, it was suggested multiple times by multiple people that I consider audit and that that would be a, a good spot for my quote unquote people skills. <laughs> so 
So I did an internship with them and that's how I knew that they were, Ernst & Young was the right firm for me because I was supposed to do my internship in January of 2000 and then, and figured out that I was pregnant and was due in January of 2000. And so that was a really scary moment <laughs> of, you know, this wasn't planned for, but is a blessing. And how do we make all of it work? And I just remember going in and talking to the HR person at Ernst & Young and them just being so supportive from the very beginning. I hadn't worked a day for them, but just going through that recruiting process and you do really get to know everybody that they were like, absolutely. Well, you'll just do your internship in the summer. What do you think could work? And so they were just flexible right off the bat. So while all of my friends were doing their busy season internships, I was at home with my daughter, Madeline, and then did a summer internship and then wrapped up and finished UT in August of 2001. So I got to walk with all of my friends in May when I was supposed to graduate. And then I still had nine hours to wrap up that summer since I had taken a semester off. Interesting. Wow. That was flexible of them. Yes. <laughs> very. <laughs> There was, you want to talk about, there's some of those crucial conversations in your life. And I was a nervous wreck going into that conversation. And so to have them be so gracious and so accommodating just right off the bat, it was phenomenal. And I think a lot of it, even at that time in the early 2000s, the big four or well, big four, final four <laughs> of the accounting firms were having a hard time keeping working mom. And so what I didn't necessarily see immediately was that it allowed me the opportunity to kind of be the poster child for them of how it worked and how flexible they could be, that you didn't have to be a manager or senior manager or partner to be able to start your family, but that you were able to do it at a younger age because they were so flexible and would accommodate you. So you're, let me get this right, you're finishing the last semester, basically, of your schooling. You have an internship pending, and you have a zero to six-month-year-old during that time, right? I'm yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and okay. so the UT All program, right. the she was 18 months old when I graduated. So the way oh, UT okay. works is you kind of have, like, that year and a half. So you do your internship, and then you still have a full year after that, after you finish your internship. So, yeah, Madeline was... 18 months old when I walked the stage <laughs> at UT. But even though she was a surprise and not something that, you know, we planned for until later, she's definitely, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me. It set my life again on that course of where I could figure out what I needed to do and what was important. And well, her and her brothers that came later. So if I don't mention Beck and Bristol in that sentence, I'll be in big trouble because <laughs> all three of them are absolutely fantastic. Wonderful. Well, I want to get to other things, but I don't want to gloss over this part. Yeah. I know we have audience members that are balancing, at least getting in the workforce, you know, and mm -hmm. they already have kids and, you know, the whole graduation. What do you, and you, it was, you know, a little bit of a surprise at that time. Yeah. What do you feel got you through that period, you know, from a, like a time management perspective or is there anything you mm -hmm. look back and, you know, you can say, this is why I made it through? There are a couple of things. 
I would say the fact that I still lived near my parents was the hugest help. Anybody that we're all very close, my brother and sister-in-law are still are here in the area, my parents, and I still live in the town I grew up in. So just that network and having everybody there and supportive has just been a huge part of me being able to do the things that I've achieved. So if I needed somebody to babysit so I could go to a study group, or I needed, you know, certain things that I was just able to always reach out and get help whenever I needed it because, you know, our village was was there <laughs> and it was strong. But it was, so a lot of times we would joke about like my friends would be up all night studying and I would laugh and say, well, I was up all night studying. Oh, and then with the baby. So <laughs> there's some of that too where it almost worked out pretty well because you're either, you were going to be up all night anyway. So then it wasn't so hard when she woke up crying because she, you know that she needed to eat or you know had something happening because I was already awake. <laughs> I think I slept sometime in there, but there are times when I wonder I don't know how I did that. I think when you look back at it, part of it you're just going through it like in the day to day and trying to just get through that day so that when you look back on it it's like wow, you you can really get through that if you're not so worried about you know, about that piece of it. But time management is definitely one of my my strong suits. And it's just been fantastic. I mean, there was 18 hour semesters in there, there were all of the things to try to make it all happen. But I also just had that inner drive that I didn't want her to have anything less than if I had had her when I planned. And that was a push to be able to get that done. So if that meant staying up an extra hour or, you know, making sure that that paper was perfect or whatever it was to get that done. And my husband, Jeff, was working, you know, two jobs at the time. And so that I could stay in school full time and still, you know, make those goals that I'd set for myself. Well, I know you were in public accounting for a while. I know you're doing something different now, but you know, I want to make sure we don't you know, miss any important points during your public accounting period. So you know, how long were you in public accounting? What was that experience like? And, and how do you feel that benefited you? So I was in public accounting for 10 years. I worked at Ernst & Young for five. And part of that was, you know, being so loyal to them. Uh, my plan was always to kind of go into accounting and be there for three years because, you know, you're a staff accountant for two years. And then that would give me one year to have running jobs and managing staff kind of under my belt. And I thought would open up some more doors. Somehow that turned into five years <laughs> while I was at Ernst & Young. And then, but when I was there, I had great clients and wonderful like engagements and just had such a good time. You can't buy training as good as you get when you're in the big four. You just can't. There's, I'm trying to think of the words to kind of put around it or what it is or what it means, but there's just not anything else like it that you can try to create. And so I loved it. I loved being in that environment. I loved the people. But when I was at Ernst & Young, I started working on some nonprofit engagements. They didn't have a lot because they were definitely focused on, you know, SEC and some of the bigger clients here in Austin. But whenever I started volunteering for those nonprofit engagements, I just realized how much I liked them and I liked the environment because they felt really different culturally than the SEC clients did. 
The staff were usually friendlier. They were happier. (laughs) They were fun to work with. So I just volunteered for as many of them as I could. And then I moved to Maxwell Lock and Ritter, which is the largest regional firm here in Central Texas. And part of that was because I had my third child in 2006. And then, so they didn't have as many of the required overtime hours as Ernst & Young did. So it was a, a better fit and balance from that side. But I was also able to just do nonprofits and then benefit plans to kind of fill some of the time in the summer. But it just allowed me to really hone my skills in the nonprofit environment and learn from the best organizations in town and then also learn from the not best organizations in town sometimes. <laughs> How did you, I guess, decide to make their transition out of public? What was that decision like for you? Or or did you simply go to work for a client? Or how did that work? You know, I did not. So I really just started, there was something about that 10-year mark, and I don't know what that is. I think maybe it was because I thought I would stay in public accounting for three years, and then suddenly it was 10 years later, and I was trying to figure out how that had happened. I was still trying to make that work. So... I just wanted to do something different. I had, you know, toyed with the idea of going into industry a couple of times, but hadn't found the right opportunity to really like push the button. And when the opportunity came up with Big Brothers, Big Sisters here in Central Texas, it was a part-time VP position. So I had the opportunity to either go part-time with Maxwell Lock and Ritter and continue to work on audit clients. But then I had this, you don't usually find higher level leadership positions that are a part-time basis. But that was a way that Big Brothers, Big Sisters had set it up so they could get a really qualified person that was looking for flexibility. Wow. You're right. I see that occasionally, but usually... Mm-hmm. Someone that started full time and then they worked in yes. part time, and they went part time. Mm-hmm. Yes, wow, that was a real yeah. opportunity. I'm curious how part time mm-hmm. was it in the beginning. Thirty hours a week, and I mean, really, it was like forty hours a week during close, twenty hours a week, you know, towards the end of the month. So there was some flexibility, but I also was able to go in at seven and leave at two, so I could get home and get my kids off the bus. I was able to volunteer in the PTA and be classroom mom and really kind of do those things while the kids were small. At that point, Bristol was in kindergarten, Beck was in second grade, and Madeline was in fifth. So it was just again trying to see that and be there when they were younger and I thought they needed me more. I then figured out I needed to go full time because they needed money more than they needed me. But you know, <laughs> that's, that's how it goes when they're, when they get older, they don't really want you around as much. They just want you to be able to pay for the car. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. The need's still there. It just changes a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they didn't need me to get them off the bus. They needed me to pay for gas. <laughs> so, so how long were you part-time? For four years while I was at Big Brothers Big Sisters, that whole four years. Okay. Well, take us through your career at Big Brothers and Sisters, you know, up till now. You know, Mm -hmm. what were your moves like and what have been the high points? What have you enjoyed? Yeah, it's been fantastic. What do you say? It's it's been a great ride. And what I learned more than anything is how important relationships are. Because when I got the Big Brothers Big Sisters job in nine interviews, (laughs) I've never been so thoroughly interviewed (laughs) in my entire life. But they had had significant turnover. They'd had six people in two years. And so they really wanted to make sure that they found somebody that would stick. And I just, you know, jumped in and got it figured out. But that was one of the things that the C 
CEO asked me as, you know, if you're going to come here, we need you to stay for at least two years. I was like, okay. And I stayed for four because it was such a good fit and such a great organization. The work that they do with matching, you know, the bigs and littles and to be able to see that work and how you can make the lives of children better, especially with that one-on-one relationship. It just, it was something that really spoke to me because I'd had such great mentors in public accounting. And yeah, it's just one of those things that you definitely take with you. You know, I, I'm realizing you went from about 10 years in public accounting to being vice president of finance, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Vice president of finance and operations, I think was my official title at Big Brothers Big Sisters. Okay. I know obviously you built up a lot of skill set up to that point, but mm-hmm. that's a big role to fill. How did that work? Was it an easy transition or did you find that you needed to you know, do some learning on your own or something like that? Yeah. It was definitely one of the harder thing for me was just learning the accounting software, which was Abila. It was a nonprofit specific software, Abila MIP software. And so just being able to get in and like run reports and get into the details because as an auditor, all you had to do was ask somebody for it and it magically appeared. (laughs) So actually being able to like get into the system and understand how it worked and was there good data going in? So there was good data coming out. So that was probably the hardest part. There was also a really great accounting manager that was there and Janice was there for the whole time. So she'd been there for four years, a few years before I got there and had kind of kept everything stable. And I really learned a ton from her and working with her through that whole process. And then we were able to elevate that accounting function for Big Brothers Big Sisters. And then when I left there and went to Common Threads, Janice came with me. And so we were quite the dynamic duo when it came to accounting. But Big Brothers Big Sisters was about a $2 million organization. So in the grand scheme of things, kind of small. And so it was easy to know everything about the organization. Um, Doing, and again, Vice President of Finance and Operations, I did finance, HR, IT, and like the building facilities. So all of those pieces. But I was most worried going into industry was the thing I was most worried about. I loved the gypsy lifestyle of being an auditor because if you had a really bad client or you had a really good client, like you were somewhere different like every two weeks. And so you just kind of rotated around and nothing was ever really the same. And so I was very worried going into industry that I was going to be bored, that it was going to be the same people at the same place doing the same stuff every day and nothing could be further from the truth. Every day is different. At at the three organizations I've been, every single day is different. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's the feedback I get from people that decide to go back into public sometimes. It's just mm-hmm. they miss the variety and, and sometimes yeah. the pace, you know, depending on mm-hmm. where they went, there's a pace mm-hmm. difference as well. So, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, take us through that time since Big Brothers and Big Sisters. You mentioned a couple organizations, Common Threads. I think it was one of them. Yes. I'm not familiar with that. So they're a national cooking nutrition nonprofit that's based here in Austin. And they're one of the only nationally operating nonprofits that are here. And so it was a great opportunity for me, one, because it was full-time. And going back to comment A, I needed needed gas money (laughs) and a car payment for my my daughter. And so being able to go full-time and kind of stepping into that challenge and then operating a national organization. And I say national, we were operating in 14 
cities in nine states. So we had, you know, 28 staff. We had about 100 contractors that were out teaching the cooking classes. But it was just fascinating to see all of that and the education component and how all of that worked. But the base of it is, you know, the one common thread that brings us all together is food and family. And so the focus was really about teaching kids to cook so that we could get back to the dinner table and have those conversations together over the dinner table, which is something that I took home and really improved our family as well. Uh, We still have salad Sundays every Sunday because that was something that we picked up at Common Threads and then have just kept going. Interesting. Okay. Food and family. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. When you say common threads, a lot of people think it's quilting or something related to clothes. (laughs) But it was a quote from our founder, Art Smith, who used to be Oprah's chef. And so that was the quote was the common thread that brings us all together as food and family. Interesting. You're exactly right. I was thinking sewing or... Yes. uh, Yes. (laughs) Clothes donation. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, exactly. Google, you know, competitor kind of thing or something. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, it doesn't quite fit, but we had a tagline, cooking for life. And so a lot of times we would use that like in our logo and and things. So if you saw it visually, you would know that it was cooking and not clothing. But that was one of the most talented groups that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. They were the most amazing just dedication, the hours, the time, and just trying to reach more kids and help more people. And in 2017, we had over a million hours of learning with our families and students and teachers. And so that was a big milestone for the team to be able to pull all that off. Did you get to meet any celebrity chefs? Any of the food network people? I did. I did. We had, that was definitely one of the perks <laughs> of was meeting all the celebrity chefs because our CEO and of course with Art Smith being one of the founders, we had an amazing chef network. So Govind Armstrong from LA and we got to go to his restaurant in LA and eat there. Of course, Art Smith cooked for us. Uh, Michelle Bernstein out of Miami makes the most amazing ceviche you've ever had. And then Adam Richman from Man vs. This food hosted our series of events. So there's a picture of us floating out there on Facebook as well. Oh, that is too cool. That is too cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had no idea, but I just, I remember some of the, you know, some of the chefs are, are getting into that now. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, yeah. The whole yeah. nutritional side as opposed to just taste. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it, That's cool. it's fascinating. And some of the kids that went through our program were like on the kids version of, was it Chopped Junior and MasterChef Junior. So some of the kids that went through our classes were so interested in cooking, then they would actually compete it on some of the um, televised shows as well. Cool. I've seen that one. I, I like Chopped Junior. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's one of my favorites. I would watch the Food Network like all day. <laughs> so how did your career progress from there? So I had a definite career highlight while I was at Common Threads and I was nominated for nonprofit CFO of the year for the Austin Business Journal because of the work that we had done and it gotten started there at Common Threads. I didn't win, but it really is an honor to be nominated. <laughs> and the cool thing about that was it put me back in the room with a lot of my old friends from public accounting. So my Ernst & Young contacts, my Maxwell Lock and Ritter friends, and just getting 
getting to see everybody again. And then the opportunity here at Upbring to join their team came out of me running into one of my old friends that night. And Upbring actually called to offer him the position. And he said, you know, no, I'm not interested, but I know who you need to talk to and was able to recommend me for the job. Wow. Okay. Now, I I did a little research on this. I hadn't looked into common threads, but Upbring is a foster agency, is that? It is. We do foster care and so much more. (laughs) That is what I have learned. I joined the team in December, so I've been here for just over four months, but we're the fifth largest nonprofit in Central Texas, and our mission is to break the cycle of child abuse. We're about an $80 million organization, so it's a lot bigger than things that I've done um, so far in my career, but it is absolutely fantastic because we work on that mission of breaking the cycle of child abuse in so many different ways, but primarily through foster care. Like you said, we also do a lot of work in adoption and our residential treatment centers that are there for girls like ages 12 to 17 who maybe are getting out of like juvie, juvenile detention, but aren't ready to go into a foster care environment. So they stay with us in our residential treatment centers for six to nine months so we can equip them with the skills where they can go back into a home. But we also serve our mission through ORR, our Office of Refugee Resettlement, which are the unaccompanied minors that come across the border so that we can match them with their families stateside. We have education programs through Head Start and Early Head Start. We have two private schools (laughs) and we're also kicking off a new grant this month through our disaster relief to help serve families impacted by Hurricane Harvey last year and that's along the Texas Gulf Coast. So there are so many ways. (laughs) There's about 800 right now, um, but with that disaster response grant, it will be closer to 850. Yeah, there are so many ways that we help. Like, it's truly amazing. It makes it so easy to come into work every day. And as I like to say, just leave it all on the floor. That was something my old basketball coach would always would say, you leave it all on the floor, girls. <laughs> so Because if you're not completely satisfied with everything that you did that day to help others, you know, you're not done yet. It's such amazing work. It's fantastic. Wow. You know, I know a little bit about the foster process, not not a tremendous amount, but it sounds like y'all have got to be one of the largest agencies involved in foster care, at least in the state then, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. We have about just under 800 kids in our care right now. Oh my gosh. Okay. Mm-hmm. And just think about that because it's 800 kids and then the families that they're living with and then the families that we're hoping will adopt them into a more permanent situation. We're doing some really good work in research right now. We just had a TIPS study that came out and it's it comes back around to kids in the foster care system just need one adult that will be with them and fight for them and be that trusted person that they know won't let them down and how that's how you break the cycle child abuse. That's how you help kids in the foster care system, which to me brings it all back around to the work that I originally started with at Big Brothers Big Sisters, where it was that same piece. You just needed one person to be that positive influence and how much it impacts kids. Wow. I had no idea. I I only looked at the website just briefly, but you know, when you were talking about the size of Big Brothers and Big Sisters, I thought, oh, you know, Upbring is probably you know similar size organization. I, I had no mm-hmm. idea that it was yeah. the scope <laughs> that you guys cover. My God. It is. Wow. Exactly. <laughs> I've thought that multiple times, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> what What's your, I guess, scope of responsibility there at Upbring? Mm-hmm. 
So I am the senior vice president of finance and I'm over all of the facilities. So I have about seven staff in the facilities side that are out at the locations that we own and operate. And then we have the accounting staff here. We have a team of 13. So my whole team now is 20. Wow. Okay. Times have changed since Big Brothers and Big They have. <laughs> yeah, because it used to just be me and Janice as one part-time person. And then when I, at Common Thread, there were two of us and Janice was still part-time. So we had two and a half people, Allie Timken, my HR person, and Janice. And so, again, just going and being able to take your skills and apply them on a larger scale. But again, like some of the most fantastic people that you will ever meet, the leadership team and the leadership that we have here at Upbring is it's just bar none. It's so fantastic to get to come and work with such talented people that are focused on the mission and working towards that common goal where it's, it's not about you and it's not about, you know, your whatever you have on tap that day. It's like it's about the kids and you focus on the work and it just it makes it all so much easier easier and so much so worthwhile. Beautiful. Well, one of the benefits uh, I like to be able to provide through the podcast is just for the audience to, you know, see, you know, the guests, although very successful, are are real people, you know, and have struggles too. Mm -hmm. And in our pre-show discussion, you mentioned a personal struggle, uh, an illness Mm -hmm. or something like that earlier on. I I see we haven't touched on that yet. And and I want to make sure before we get to the final questions that we don't skip over that. If it is something you want to share, what was that? Because I don't remember the details, honestly. Yeah. And that's one of those things that's like the day that will live in infamy. You know, you have those things that change your life. And so I talked about like being in, you know, with Mrs. Harrington um, and helping me put on that accounting path. And then, you know, having Madeline in college. And this was definitively one of those moments where it just, everything changed, you know, from that day forward. And so on August 29th, uh, 2013, again, the day that will live in infamy, (laughs) I had a bilateral pulmonary embolism, which means I had blood clots go into both of my lungs and block the blood flow. And it was one of those things like I knew something was wrong, but you don't think it's anything that serious. And so I was super stubborn and I went to a meeting that I had scheduled that night anyway, (laughs) but thankfully it was at the high school. And so when I was walking in, my oxygen levels would drop because again, the blood flow wasn't getting around like it's supposed to in your lungs and I almost passed out. And so was able to get into the meeting room and because we're on the high school campus, they grabbed a sports trainer from the football game that was going on at the same time. So he was able to come over and assess me and thought maybe I was having a panic attack or, you know, that there was definitely something wrong. And he goes, well, let's give it a minute and I'll come back. Um, this is one of the benefits of still being in your hometown. This was my high school trainer. So I had known <laughs> coach winners for years. And so, you know, you have that immediate trusted advisor of like, okay, well, whatever he says. So when he came back around, around. He's like, well, let me walk downstairs with you. And I walked out to the elevator and got short of breath. And he goes, this is bad. You've got to go immediately. You're going to the emergency room. You're not going to the meeting. And just had that immediate like, oh, okay. <laughs> like I've got somebody you know that I trust that's telling me I need to do this. And so they had me diagnosed within 10 minutes of walking into the emergency room that it was a blood clot. And so they immediately you know gave me the shots and did all of the stuff to make that happen. But I was in ICU for a week. 
I had a clot blocker on the table so that if the clots in my lungs broke up and left my lungs, that they would likely cause a heart attack or stroke. And so it was right there when the doctors needed it. And there's something to be said of when you're sitting in ICU for a week and there's a box right there that you're like, okay, I hope they don't need that. (laughs) But if they do, look, it's right there. It's not going to get lost. Let's just keep that front and center. But the crazy thing about it was, and what we didn't know then at the time was that the clots wouldn't clear. And so I was sick. We did different medications. I did shots. I did all of these things and they wouldn't clear out of my lungs. And so I lived with them for nine months. And so what that did was my body was working so hard to get enough oxygen. It started to cause hypertension. My heart was starting to harden which is something that, you know, your heart's a muscle, and but you don't want it to be that strong where it's actually hardening. And so because they wouldn't clear in May of 2014, I went to San Diego, California to have a PTE surgery, a pulmothromboendorectomy, which is essentially open heart surgery, but they remove the clots from your lungs instead. So I have a full zipper scar that starts like just below my clavicle and runs 18 inches down my chest. It's a super intense surgery. I died twice on purpose. It's part of it when they they take you down and you're dead for essentially four minutes. They took out one clot. They bring you back up and then they put you back under where you're you're dead (laughs) for four minutes. So, but they took the clots out. So it was definitely one of those life-changing things. It was the nine months, like that long period of trying to remain positive and stay balanced and not get sucked down into the everyday, like life and death piece of what was happening with me while I was still trying to be a mom and be there for my kids and make, you know, all of the things happen. But really, I just came out of it on the other side, you know, stronger and more determined than ever. And it just gave me perspective on so many things because not a whole lot matters when you don't have your health. And I have to take medication daily because what it, I ended up being diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder and that just causes my blood to clot. <laughs> so it happens to women in their 30s and 40s. It's not genetic. It just happened. But it really allowed us to rely on that village, the people who pulled together, take my kids to school, to practice, to help out. I just couldn't thank them enough. And all of this happened when I was at Big Brothers Big Sisters, and they were so supportive. The staff, the CEO, they were so supportive. During that time, I was able to work remotely until I was stable. And then this is awesome because I'm like 35, 36 at the time. My mom would take me to work (laughs) with my oxygen tank. (laughs) And then she'd go sit in the conference room and like play on her iPad or read a book or whatever. But it gave me like four hours in the office to just have some normalcy like to see my friends, to print financials, you know, to do those things. And it just really helped me mentally not have too much time on my hands because then you start watching YouTube videos or looking up stuff on the internet and that's never a good idea. (laughs) 
But I mean, it was it was a crazy nine months, and it was life changing, not just for me, but again for everybody, for my family. I'm I'm two weeks away from my fourth birthday, so that's always exciting. But if I, you know, believe my cardiologist, he says, well, it's just a matter of when a clock kills me, not if. So there's always that positive note. <laughs> but so you know, every day it's important and a blessing, and I just remind myself to breathe because it's all relative, and especially when you can't breathe for nine months, it, you know, just take a minute and just keep perspective on all of it. But again, I've just tried to use it as a positive thing to push me to work harder and reach my goals. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you have to really learn to live just for today and, you know, during the time period at least. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know it sounds like cheesy and sappy because I think almost everybody has something like that, right? Like maybe it's a car accident or a health scare or, you know, there's going to be something bad that happens usually to somebody, but I'd never get off the phone without telling my husband, my parents and my kids that I love them. Like if that's the last thing they hear, that's the last thing I want them to hear come from me is, I love you. And so I I never get off the phone. Even when I'm at work or my mom calls, I'm like, okay, bye mom, love you. <laughs> and so because I, I want that to be the last thing that they hear from me. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. This is a career yeah. podcast, but it's about life. And so I think mm-hmm. you know, if, that, if that gives one person a little hope that is having yep. some difficulty right now that you've been yeah. through that. That's, uh, wow. Yeah, Thank and you. and I worked through it. <laughs> I worked through all of it, but it actually made it easier for me because it gave me something else to think about. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, and we've been on yeah. about 45 minutes now. We've got three questions that we end every okay. podcast with, so let's go ahead to move to those. The first one is, from a career perspective, what has been your proudest moment? Being nominated for the nonprofit CFO of the Year by the Austin Business Journal, that was just that moment where I was among my peers and people that I had audited and that had been mentors and that I'd just been with in this community of Austin, Texas during my career and to know that I was just in the ballpark with some of the people that I'd learned so much from. It was just an amazing moment of I'm doing it and I'm doing it right. That is an honor. It really is. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us about a mistake you've made and what you learned from it, of course, because that's the valuable piece. But but frankly, the bigger, the better. We like to really yeah. <laughs> So, well, and I'm laughing at this because I'm like, which mistake? Was that the mistake today or the one yesterday? <laughs> one the one before. Yes, one per podcast. So, because I always like to say, like, I know I'm not perfect and I don't expect anybody to be perfect, but we should always learn from it whenever we make mistakes so we don't make the same ones twice. And so I think the biggest mistake I made was not following the advice of a coworker who had told me that this particular client was really hard to deal with and that I needed to be prepared. And so, you know, it sounds kind of ominous, like, ooh, well, and I'm like, well, I'm pretty cool. Like, I'm a nice person. Everyone loves me. Like, I should, I'll be And just working and trying to get that person to like me to do like all of the things and trying to make it work and trying to build this relationship. And then at the end, realizing it was never going to (laughs) work. 
So just some of those things like where you spend so much time and effort and like you take it personally and it hurt my feelings. And I was so like, I took it to that emotional level of like, I don't know what's wrong with me because I can't affect this person better. But really getting to the end of it, and I was like, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about them. And just remembering that when people show you who they are, believe them. (laughs) So you're not going to be able to change their spots. They're still going to be cheetahs or leopards or whatever. Just when they show you who they are, believe them and move on. (laughs) That's a good lesson. A lot of the mistakes people share are, are, you know, technical, which is good. We can learn from that. Oh, I've made those too. but. The ones that really stick are the people ones, though, because it's so much about relationships. Like, it's the numbers, but it's about the relationships and the people. And I think that's why I remember that one so well is because, like, it still hurts. Like, to hear that person's name, I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I couldn't turn that one around. Like, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, you can't control what other people think. True. Yeah. Very, very true. Well, last question, and then we'll close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? So the best piece of advice was the worst thing someone can tell you is no, but the answer is always no if you don't ask. And so oddly enough, I was told that by Ann Richards, the former Texas governor, when I saw her at the movies here in town. So I was seeing a movie with my boyfriend and she was in the lobby and I was completely starstruck. And so I talked my boyfriend into going over there and asking her for an autograph. Yes, because this was pre-selfie and you still ask for autographs. <laughs> it was okay. But she said no, because I didn't ask myself. And so I gathered up all of my courage and went over um, to ask. And so she signed my movie ticket and told me that, that the worst thing somebody can tell you is no, but the answer is always no if you don't ask. So I've never, ever forgotten that and have asked for a lot more things because of it, because I think being able to speak up and having your voice is really important. <laughs> I like, so I ran into the governor at the yeah. movie theater. And exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and Ann Richards was, so, oh my gosh. I mean, she was just larger than life. That HBO special they have on her. Oh my God. She, yes, absolutely. Just so amazing. But yeah, that's how Austin is. Like you run into Matthew McConaughey. Like there's just Sandra Bullock. You know, like there's just celebrities around Austin, but you just have to be cool. You're not really supposed to talk to them. So... <laughs> But it was Ann Richards, so I had to. I had to. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, thank you. That is a great story to end this on. I, I really appreciate yeah. it. That's beautiful. Well, for our audience, this has been another episode of Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. If you haven't yet visited our home website, please do so. You can find the show notes for this one, of course, but we have show notes for all our episodes. We have links to certification, review courses, and we've got a little job board there for Texas, really filled out for South Texas and starting to expand as well. That's at whereaccountantsgo.com. On that note, Holly, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I mean, I think the just go out there and volunteer. Find a nonprofit that's close to you and close to your heart. If you don't have time to volunteer, think about giving money because nonprofits need both. <laughs> but just get out of your comfort zone. Go volunteer, but don't do the finances. Go do the PR part or the communications or something not finance related. Stretch yourself grow as a person. I'm an elected official in my hometown. I never wanted to be in politics or do anything like that. I've grown more from doing that and putting myself out there than anything else I've done. 
Wow. That is really good insight to end this on. Thank you again to the audience for joining us. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come. <laughs>